Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm joined by Bill Addison, the restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Bill. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jen. Good to hear your voice. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, I am Bill Addison. I am the restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. I have been writing about food for almost 20 years. It feels so strange to say that. It went by in a blur. I started as a freelancer at Creative Loafing Atlanta, semi-RIP, in uh, 2002. (laughs) And uh, I uh, got an opportunity to go to the San Francisco Chronicle in 2006. Uh, I only stayed there for a year. I got a job as a lead critic at the Dallas Morning News. I wanted to come back to Atlanta, which felt like home. So I got a job then at Atlanta Magazine. In 2014, I received an extraordinary opportunity to be Eater's National Critic. We can talk more about that later, I guess. You will. Um, (laughs) I have it in my question. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I did that for almost five years. I traveled the country almost full-time for nearly five years. And uh, then I got this job in Los Angeles. And here I am. I love it in this city. Like just, you know, because I know you personally and how visual you are because you are an artist in a lot Mm. of different ways, a gifted singer, but also just a really visual person. Like what is your earliest memory of food? Like when you close your eyes and you think, what comes up for you? First of all, I love this question. I love that you've been asking people their origin stories. I feel like we're all (laughs) X-Men. You know I love X-Men. Anything Marvel, too. I'm going to say strawberries. My mother grew up on a farm on the eastern shore of Maryland. My whole family on my mother's side is farmers. And I just remember strawberries tasting the way that a strawberry is really supposed to taste deep down and and look really like dark red, almost purple around my birthday, which is at the end of May and which was strawberry season in Maryland. So if I think about what stretches far back, that's got to be it. I mean, I think that crab is a close second. And it, it took me a long time into my adult life and into food writing to realize how Maryland has its own culinary identity. And I just thought of myself as growing up in this very kind of 1970s white monolithic generic culinary culture. But in fact, there are these touchstones in my life that that I think pointed me in the direction of, of where I went professionally. I mean, it was ultimately your story about Marilyn Crabb that won you a James Beard Award. And it, it must have been, it must have been, you know, a monumental memory if it was something that could make you write so, I mean, it was a beautiful piece. I saw you write in a Q&A or answer in a Q&A rather that your family has very different personalities. But like when you all got around a dinner table, you got along so well. That was like when you guys were at your best. And it was like something that you wanted to recreate those experiences over and over in your life. And I thought that was so interesting because the dinner table is not a positive place for everyone with their family, you know, because it's a really concentrated area. 
Well, um, I think it wasn't always a positive place in, in our house either, but it was interesting that being outside our house in that kind of idea that, that's percolated about third places that aren't home, that aren't work, but are these third places where we gather in society. I mean, I was happiest eating in restaurants and I understand more than ever the innate privilege of being able to eat in restaurants growing up, starting from when I was about eight. And it wasn't a constant, but it felt really special when it happened. My mother wanted her fish really hot and she would send it back if it wasn't really hot and we knew that. And my father was like the the total like filet mignon, like beef kind of guy or veal. And my brother was kind of a a bruiser, still is, right? And he wanted like gamey meat. He wanted venison if they had it on the menu or lamb or duck or whatever like was. With the bone, right? Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I like, I liked the stuff that seemed most unusual. You know, if there was something that I didn't recognize, obviously, if there was, you know, like I remember some dish with lobster and vanilla because it was like 80s Nouvelle cuisine. And, um, you know, so I wanted that, even if I didn't always get it because lobster was expensive. But right. I, I would kind of beeline for the things that kind of seemed like like I, I recognized early what was common and I, I wanted the things that were uncommon. Why? Do you think it was curiosity? Were you like craving status? Like as a child, I used to always order the lobster too. I mean, hmm. I mean <laughs> if um, I could, if I could, even at Red Lobster. I think I've always been drawn. I think I felt, you know, I can say now as a gay kid in the suburbs, exurbs, almost rural parts of Maryland that I felt very other. And so I think it was that kind of almost cliched thing that's very real where as somebody who felt other, I was drawn to otherness and I, that extended even into food. Hmm. Yeah. And what role did food play in your family? I mean, it was the uniter. You know, when we were around a dinner table like that, I mean, that's what I was saying too as examples of the, the fanciest meals, but even, you know, going out for pizza, we just seemed happiest. We just accepted each other with the most kindness in restaurants. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that I've essentially lived out my life in restaurants for the last 20 years, even though I didn't think about that decision consciously. It's only now starting to look back as I am on the cusp of turning 50 that I think about things like that. It's very interesting. So are, are restaurants your happy place? They're my everything place. <laughs> I mean, you're not tired. Stress, <laughs> happiness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I just, when I say I live out my life in restaurants, I mean it. You know, I have, I can think of incredibly difficult conversations I've had personally and professionally in restaurants. I can think of falling in love over meals in restaurants and deciding I wasn't in love with someone over restaurants. I just, you know, I see the world through restaurants, not just, you know, the fancy places, but every culture that I'm curious about, I can find a way in through eating in a restaurant that serves that kind of food. It's pretty amazing, actually. When did you know food was going to be a thing for you? Like, well, I mean, like, when did it transition from being just a source of entertainment 
to a thing where you were just like, I have to go work in this industry? Because for a while you were doing what? Pre-food, you were a singer. You, you've had many Yeah, I lives. went to for singing and acting. So mm -hmm. that's kind of, I wanted to be like a pop star who broke into films, very modest ambitions for myself. And <laughs> yeah, that, that turned out the way it turns out for most people. So I think, you know, I, in college, I recognized that I had these like four interests, right? Or even maybe post-college, you, you read that book, like what color is your parachute? Because I earn a BFA in acting and I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with myself in the world. I hope I can curse on this. Oh, you and totally can. It's just a chef's. <laughs> <laughs> so I identified that I loved to sing. I liked acting. I loved to write. And I really loved food. And so when I was trying to figure out what to do, I was sort of just trying different hats on. But the food kept winning. You know, I would be in New York and I should be saving up for headshots and voice lessons and going to auditions. And instead, I read Ruth Reichel's restaurant reviews in the 1990s and save up and go to the more affordable restaurants that she reviews. And I end up working in restaurants, all different kinds of jobs in restaurants. I bust tables. I waited tables. I managed when I realized I was more interested in the actual food than then frankly, in like the customer service aspect of it, I switched to the back of the house, even though I recognized that the chefs didn't make as much money as the servers. I wanted to pursue what mattered to me. And I think that carried into journalism, right? You ain't going to get rich in journalism. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm lucky because I'm happen to be in a beat in journalism where the company pays for your meals. And I'm grateful for that. But yeah, I've always chosen the path where I, I would be fulfilled creatively more than be fulfilled financially. And what kind of restaurant critic are you? I mean, there's a lot of different types. Like I talked to Besha and I was like, Besha for me, like has always seemed like so like inside baseball with chefs, you know, like I would joke with her and I was like, you'd write a shitty like a review and then people would be like, oh, thanks, Besha. We love you. We understand, you know, or like there's people that are more diner centric and all about the value. Who do you think of when you're writing your reviews? Yeah, that's an interesting question that keeps evolving. I don't, I think, first of all, I would say, even if it sounds pretentious, like I'm a literary restaurant critic, the writing always mattered to me, always, from the very beginning. There was a moment at Creative Loafing when I wrote a review of Two Urban Licks. Baby, remember that? Oh, <laughs> but so yeah, but I, I broke through in that review. I wrote something that was pointed, but had some imagery to it. And I, I felt like, okay, like you're on your way. It took like three years for me to get to that place in my writing where I was like, okay, like now you're kind of becoming the writer that you want to be in this genre. I have been a mean restaurant critic. I have been almost an arbiter. I think the work at Eater was not so much about criticism, right? right but it was just about taking it all in, observing, making sense of things, finding meaning, finding connection. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to say what kind of restaurant critic I am now, if I'm being really honest. I think I've brought all those things to bear in who I am right now. But 
it's a pandemic. And so even though there is the impulse sometimes to write uh, negative reviews still, I've gotten a lot softer over the years, partly in Los Angeles, I don't have to eat badly. You know, like literally, like there's so much here. I could just Google, you know, when I first got here, it was amazing. I was like, God, I want Georgian food. And I would just Google and they'd be like, oh, hey, yeah, a new Georgian restaurant just happened. So jealous. Right. So jealous. Right. You're like at a different Lebanese restaurant like yeah, every week. Exactly. Right. Yeah, which is like your personal joy. Yeah. I'm sure. Absolutely. So it's easier for me. I understand why my predecessor, Jonathan Gold, didn't write such negative reviews toward the latter part of his career as well, because you don't have to in Los Angeles. It can be about expressing the culture and context and deliciousness or cultural richness through one place every week. It's not hard to find a sense of place there, like to like put it into the fabric of the culinary world in LA. I mean, there's so many different perspectives I can't imagine, but I mean, like you said, you've had so many different critic jobs, which is why you've been so many different types of critics. I mean, I've known you for a long time now, probably like 15 years, something like that. <laughs> and when I first met you, you were living in Atlanta and you know your, your coverage was basically in Atlanta. And then you got this job with Eater when you were the quote unquote roving critic and you were on the road all of a sudden like, all the time like what was it like three months solid like I, I don't even remember what it was three weeks out of the month or something was, like that it was three weeks out of the month was the general gist and toward the end it got to be even more that was partly my own stuff because my personal life had kind of blown up during that job and i felt a sense of rootlessness so i was just like i'm gonna just stay on the road if you remember jen it was you who sent me the job listing. <laughs> I know, I know. I just critic job at Eater. They called it restaurant editor at the time. Mm-hmm. And they you said this would be perfect for you. And and really, if you had asked me when I was at Atlanta magazine a year before that job even came into being, what my dream would be, I would have absolutely said it was for somebody to pay me to eat and travel and write about that. I mean, at the time, I remember you were like, I just don't even have, because like you said, journalism's not a lucrative career. I remember at the time you'd be like, I just want to travel. You know, mm-hmm. I haven't been to Europe in years. You know, I, I want to travel. And then all of a sudden, here's this job and you can travel. Just like I was asking Besha when she got the food and wine thing, like all she's ever wanted to do is this, right? Travel the world, like to every single different country. Did it demystify things for you? Like, did it all of a sudden going from, getting everything that you wanted. I mean, from not having it, Mm. wishing for it, getting everything you wanted, having access to the best of the best, to Bluestone, Barnes, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff. Did it change your relationship with food at all? Absolutely. And restaurants. (laughs) It absolutely changed it because I saw that you can't contain America in one sentence, right? That's just like Mm. the bottom line. I can't, I was never ever bored. Can you give listeners like kind of just an elevator speech that summarizes what the job entailed if they're not eater readers or? Sure. Yeah. So the original goal of that job, eater was part of a trio of 
websites, Curbed, which was about real estate, and Racked, which was about fashion, was the other one. And in late 2013, Vox Media bought those three sites. And those three sites were given some major funding. Eater was first up. And so the founders and the the woman who became editor-in-chief, Amanda Clute, envisioned this job where somebody traveled the country full-time reporting on every aspect of dining as it was unfolding kind of real time. Eater had a thing that they're sort of moving away from now, but they had this magic number 38, Eater 38. And the editors always like to say that they, the number like is arbitrary. I think it just, the alliteration of Eater 38 sounded good to them. It wasn't Mm -hmm. 25, it wasn't 50, it was somewhere in between. So then this job, was tasked with coming up with the 38 essential restaurants in the United States, which is just a hilarious impossible. (laughs) The entire United States and 38 restaurants. Right. Mm -hmm. But kind of a fun challenge. And man, I got that job because I had an, an angel in the New York food media who pointed the people who are hiring toward me. And otherwise I never, ever, ever would have gotten that job when they, looked at me, I think that they saw that I had kicked around the country a lot. So I, I knew kind of already many angles of, of eating in America. I was point blank that uh, my partner at the time also traveled for work. And so I think you could easily see how this job would be very hard on someone's personal life. Mm-hmm. But for a while, he and I were able to see each other even a little more because we could coordinate our travel schedules and meet up on the road. So I think that helped me. And Amanda and I really hit it off. So they hired me and it changed my life. It changed my life. And that first year that I was writing, first of all, it was an odd, like the job was so big. It was sort of almost like that job that the New York Times came up with a few years later where they had a writer kind of live out the 52 places to visit that the travel section would put out every year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's almost so much that it's overwhelming and you you have a hard time finding a readership or finding an audience because I think that first year, we didn't even know like who the audience would be except people who were curious about this guy who landed this crazy gig, right? So if you're writing in Chicago about what you're eating, do the people in Chicago really care that this person is like, hey, guess what? Like, I had the, the <laughs> burger, you know what I mean? And, you know, I went to- An Ocheval? Right, exactly, the Ocheval, thank you, the Ocheval burger. Oh, I okay. was there by myself. Yeah, right? Exactly, right? Yeah. Doing all the things that everyone was doing, but just kind of visiting and giving, it was just really more impressions. So as the job went along, as I- settled in and I loved doing it. I think they told me later that they wondered if someone was just going to have that job for a year and then they'd be like, okay, bye. That was a cool experiment. Yeah. As I settled in, I was grateful that they let me write more actual, highly contextual restaurant reviews of single places in which I could tell not just the story of the restaurant, but the story that was happening around the restaurant and some really cool thinkier pieces. I guess what comes to mind right now is the the way that Vietnamese cuisine and the 
immigrant influx there has forever influenced New Orleans food culture. Stories like that, which were really satisfying. I loved writing a story near the end of my time with Eater about Oakland and how dynamic it was, how it was really more interesting than what was going on in San Francisco as a food town. And that was the most satisfying when I kind of was still able to be a restaurant critic and talk through the experience, not just kind of the standard, like, you know, how's the food, how's the service, what's the ambiance like, all those things that that are the foundation of restaurant criticism through the decades, but really chew on the meeting of the place, the, the narrative of the chef. It was really narrative. We have come to this place in American dining where what's most exciting is when chefs are expressing some sort of narrative. You know, it's not so much a hearkening to France or even this sort of ubiquitous idea of Chez Panisse style, you know, organic, sustainable, local, fresh, but like, who is the person creating this food and what is the meaning of it for them and how does it translate to the diner? Mm-hmm. That's maybe what interests me most right now. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm speaking with Bill Addison. What did it do for your relationship with restaurants at aspirational dining? Like having that access because like this was a big job and Eater has so many connections, right? So like it was like all the the typical doors and barriers to entry that were there like you know, had been eliminated. At the end of it all, were you like still interested in going to restaurants? Yeah, of course. I've never stopped being interested in going. I mean, okay, I guess to be really honest, the couple of months between when I started at the LA Times and when my job was finishing at Eater, it was a pleasure to hardly go out. It was a pleasure to give my body a break. Yes. And I didn't realize how much my body needed that break. And it felt good to just have that that space, like to kind of honestly to, to shed some pounds maybe and kind of reboot. But to answer the, the previous question, that first year, I was so excited to go to all the biggies, right? To go to Alinea, to go to Bennu in San Francisco, to go to Urasawa in Los Angeles, to go to all the starry restaurants in New York, particularly the ones that my eater colleagues pushed me towards, Stone Barns. And then the fancy, fancy dining became less interesting as the years went on. I mean, I probably, you know, of course, I've particularly listened to the episodes of my colleagues from Atlanta and listening to Besha and Christian talk. I mean, I do like a tasting menu more than Besha likes a tasting menu. (laughs) We always have. Yeah, I always have. But what was so exciting was that I could dive into the immigrant communities at the place where they, places where they'd really established themselves in the country. So for example, Atlanta might have really wonderful Korean food because of the community that has grown and established itself there from like Spaghetti Junction up to Duluth. Yeah. But I could eat every cuisine in the world, including like slightly outside the United States. When I went to 
Richmond, BC, right outside of Vancouver to eat Cantonese food. Mm, the best. It blew my mind. Yeah. I, I honestly think I had better Cantonese food of a certain era than I did in Hong Kong. Now, maybe that was because I had an amazingly good guide in Vancouver, a food writer named Lee Mann, who is so generous with like leading me to the exact right places. The best dim sum I've ever had in my life was in Vancouver. Yeah. The Cantonese and Indian cuisine there. And also they had izakaya before the United States got hip to izakaya. I remember I was there right before it became a trend. Oh, still I remember that restaurant. Like yeah, Vancouver. Chinese, this old like, Chinese lady literally threw an elbow to get some hargao. Amazing. Like, it was amazing. It was Chinese. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I think that Vancouver remains a really underrated food city in, in North America. But it was that kind of pleasure that I could, I can tell you over and over and over again. You know, and another one that's, I guess, very obvious to, to people who follow me in my work and on social media is... You know, Kellyanne Giroudi, who is one of the owners of Cacao Lab Chocolate Company, became a very close friend. She's Lebanese. And though I love the meals that her mother would make when she came to town and she was very generous, and I understood that the food that I was eating from her mother's table was not the food that I was eating in the Lebanese restaurants in Atlanta, say, which were just very kind of basic and hummus and, and kebabs. But when I went to Ann Arbor, Michigan, that has one of the largest Arab American populations in the country, I started eating through the Lebanese restaurants there. And it like literally, it blew my mind. And then like, it kept my mind blown, you know? And it, it started interest in Lebanese culture through food has bled into both my, my personal and professional lives. Like, you know, the beauty of writing and working in Los Angeles is that I never become repetitive. It's never the same kind of food over and over again. You don't have to, you know, in other cities I've worked in, the menus can be very similar, right? And kind of in this modern American or new American vernacular with just a scattering of immigrant cuisines from established communities there. That's not the case in Los Angeles. It's just, it's ever reaching, everlasting, but it's fun to have this thing in my life, this interest in Lebanese food that is kind of my own. That's, gosh, how do I say it? Because I've been doing this for so long, I kind of gave my life to my work, right? And it's fun only now, and I really think the pandemic had something to do with it in terms of just its disruption of my job, that I have a few things <laughs> like a relationship like taking Lebanese Arabic lessons because I'm so curious about the culture that I, I have something beyond work. I like it. I kind of need it. I love that for you. Thanks. As your friend, I love it for you. And just for as any person, because I think after the past year and a half, two years, it's just yeah. going on and on now. Um, you know, I think work-life balance is just so important for everyone. But I mean, how has the pandemic changed restaurants and food for you? Like for me, I've been to two restaurants inside in two years, with the exception of popping in masks to pick things up. I am now again, even though I am vaccinated, uncomfortable going in restaurants again. It seems like from your Instagram, you are out at restaurants again. Oh yeah. Like, how is it for you? I mean, I'm a, I'm a nervous Nelly. I couldn't stay away. Partly I couldn't stay away because Angelinos aren't staying away. And it is wild out there. Every restaurant, of any notoriety is booked. 
weeks out in the primetime spots. I look at so many places and it's like 5 p.m. or 9 p.m., that whole old game of trying to get a table at a decent slot. Also, of course, Los Angeles has the capacity for outdoor dining and that changes things. The county government stepped up and changed some regulations to make outdoor dining much more easy to make outdoor alcohol sales and takeout of alcohol much easier, which helped the bottom line. Oh my God, that helped here. Like having alcohol delivery here. Can you imagine after the blue laws, after all those years and having to go cocktails, but I mean, you, your personal feeling towards restaurants, like after being denied the space that you love for this long, are you excited again, even though the cognitive dissonance is high? (laughs) The cognitive dissonance is high. I am. Here's the truth. I am almost nightly excited to be eating restaurant food again. And in fact, I was one of, I guess, one of the rare food writers that never stopped eating. My editors and I kind of decided, again, Los Angeles is such an enormous city and we have a, a staff of you know four or five writers. So I would kind of focus on takeout. Mm-hmm. And what came of takeout, which was of course a great pop-up culture that's happened in Los Angeles, that's happened everywhere, but I'm gonna say is particularly extraordinary in Los Angeles. God, your pictures were like ridiculous of your takeout and the way that Los Angeles restaurants stepped up with the packaging and with the variety and with the, you know, with the reaches and some of their dishes. I mean, yeah, interesting. The from Korean restaurants, the chirashi boxes and the bentos from Japanese restaurants. I think those are the ones I was talking about. Yeah. Those bentos yeah. are like, oh, you know <laughs> what I mean? So great. So I felt it was important for my job because I could Of course, I was writing like every other food writer in America about the crisis of this moment and what it means in this kind of ongoing, insolvable way that we love this very fragile industry. And so many people work in this very fragile industry in which the bottom can fall out way too easily and did. And how do we fix that going forward with no easy or clear answers having yet emerged, I don't think. None that I've seen, none that I've experienced. That doesn't mean I don't see small businesses treating their employees with compassion, I absolutely do. But this kind of idea of of how to dismantle the hierarchy, how to burn it all down again and start over again, how to pay a living wage without tipping, which is based in racist practices, all that stuff absolutely on the table and figured into how I considered everything, but I was still at the bottom line, eating a lot and reporting on it. Mm -hmm. So now how do I feel? I feel overwhelmed socially is the honest answer. Uh, Yeah. I just, I I guess nobody expecting anything (laughs) of me for a while. It was really nice. I'm an extroverted introvert though. So I definitely lean more, extrovert than introvert and so every time i get myself actually into the setting i'm i'm sitting with someone that i haven't seen or that i haven't met yet and we're engaged i'm happy i was dining indoors for a while because the numbers were so good and the vaccination rate is really good in california now the delta variant is running rampant here as well so i'm back to dining outdoors only 
It's evolving daily. If we had this conversation next week, I'd probably have a slightly different answer for you. That's what's so weird. I'm like, when I'm doing these interviews, like even if I listen a couple of weeks, like the pandemic has changed yet again. You can hear me in the beginning, like, oh, I'm scared. And be like, oh, I just ate at this rest new restaurant from Jordan Smelt of Cakes and Ale. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm like back to doing takeout again. It's just, I mean, listen, we all have to be flexible. It's very interesting that we have all been in a collective beginner's mind. And I don't feel like humanity has experienced that in a while, <laughs> which is very unsettling. Yeah. It's interesting that you use that exact term too, because, you know, I studied with Natalie Goldberg, uh, a pretty famous writer and writing teacher in my twenties, which is part of her teaching was very follow your obsessions into your writing. That's where you'll find your energy as a writer. Her book. Yeah. Writing down the bones, right? Mm -hmm. Probably. Natalie studied Zen very seriously. And so she works the idea of Zen into her writing life and her teaching mm -hmm. about writing and beginner's mind, which came from uh, Suzuki Roshi, who was one of the people who brought Zen to America with the San Francisco Zen Center. He always talked about the concept of beginner's mind. And I thought about that a lot. I guess I still do when I was starting my career as a restaurant critic, because I also wanted to be really fair as a writer. And so I thought, you know, beginner's mind, every time they'll come in, this is fresh. Don't come in with expectations, even if it's from a restaurant group whose previous restaurants you may have thought were a little hacky or, you know, this is a menu that looks like no big deal. Like just be come in being really present. And I, I think beginner's mind translates into this idea of having to be present in the pandemic because every moment is different. Like we have no choice but to be present. That's this week's episode. Thank you for joining me and thank you to Bill for sharing. We'll pick up with part two next week. Again, we're back on Wednesday and this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. 